Find Your Faith with the Find Your Faith podcast. Today's conversation is a really important one to be having, for the world is facing a water and energy crisis. Around the globe, I find it really amazing to believe that there's almost 1 billion people living without access to electricity, while 2.1 billion are without safely managed water services. When I think about these figures, I think that you know urgent action is required to deliver clean energy. Uh, and to also limit the effects of climate change, but whilst making sure that we maintain the preciousness of our wild spaces. The dominance of fossil fuels has obviously been a huge driver of global warming, and I discussed that with my brother recently on the Find Your Feet podcast here. But there is a demand for energy, and it's expected to double from 2015 to 2060. So the world really must look towards sustainable and renewable mixes of energy sources. It was actually at a Christmas function for the Australian Institute of Company Directors Board that I am sit on that I came across Helen and uh, became aware of how she's trying to create change from the top and use a director career to influence the way that our organisations operate. Helen is just a remarkable lady. Uh, She has won multiple awards and the most recent one was winning the Women with Hydrovision Award from the International Hydrovision Conference in the USA. She also won a Young Water Scientist of the Year Award from the Australian Water Forum Cooperative Research Centre back in 1998 and I think that that really probably did push her onto this extraordinary career. She's worked in so many different countries all over the world and uh, from places and, and with different organizations such as the World Bank, the Australia, the Asian Development Bank, the International Hydropower Association, the Mekong River Commission, the World Wildlife Fund, energy corporations in Australia, Laos, Iceland and Malaysia, just to name a few. She has um, really paved her way into working for over 25 years in the hydropower industry and her main focus is on how she can bring sustainability and assessments of sustainability into this uh, really important industry. In her words, uh, her real focus is on how can she solve environmental problems in this hydropower industry. So I really do want to have this conversation because I think that there is a large elephant in the room, which is the negative view that we have of uh, of hydropower and dams and how this can affect not just our environment, but also have social impacts, financial impacts, the challenges with governance, you know, and also technical challenges associated with dams. So this conversation is about to begin with Helen. I hope that you find it as interesting and as challenging as I did in preparing preparing for it. But um, before I jump into it, I just want to take a moment to wish you all the most wonderful beginning of 2020. Can we really believe that another year has flown past? I love this time of year because I think it's a really important time for reflection. I've been doing my own reflections and I like to think about life sort of bundled into five areas the people we meet, the places we visit, the experiences we have, the learning that we embark on, and the activities that we also find ourselves doing. 
I uh, did a reflection on these five areas in my life, thinking about what I started in 2019, what I maintained in 2019, and also what finished for me or what I finished in 2019. So, you know, who did I meet? What relationships did I maintain? And what relationships ended? What experiences did I start? What experiences did I maintain? And what experiences finished for me? It's just been a really interesting way to reflect on my year and therefore to be able to set myself up for 2020. So I hope that you take this time to um, take a little bit of reflection and to get yourself planning into 2020. I also just want to acknowledge the hard work and efforts of my little but growing Find Your Feet and the team who work for us there. Um, Our tours have gone from strength to strength and 2020 is now all but sold out for our Find Your Feet traveling holidays. If you want to have a look at the tours, jump across to findyourfeettours.com.au. I also can't believe that the brand Find Your Feet has now just turned 10. So it was back in 2009 that I tapped a lady on the shoulder and begged and groveled her to come along to my newly released adult running classes in the parks of Hobart. On day one, she was the only one who turned up. I didn't have the heart to charge her the $5 to come for a run. And so I bumbled around the parks with her and then obviously zero dollars. I've rarely seen it as a business. In fact, I've had to challenge myself to see it as a business just to help make it a more sustainable commodity as it's grown and evolved over time. But with now over 20,000 followers, I am just so grateful for this journey that I've been able to embark on, for the lessons and learnings that I've been able to have here on the podcast, from the people that I've been able to work with and, and learn from in the performance coaching sector, from the people that we've guided around the hills and dales on the tours, and also to the um, extraordinary journey that even the retail environment has taken me on to learning from the brands about how we can make a positive difference in the world around us even while there is a consumer focus um, to also the people that walk in the door in your individual journeys. So if there's anything we can do to help, if there's anything I can do to help, please just reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what 2020 holds for you, what people and stories you want to hear from here on the podcast. You can do that through my own newly released website, hannyalston.com.au. There's also a plethora of resources there from my books to my training plans. And I'm pretty excited to announce that the beginning of this year is also going to see the release of the memoir, which has been long awaited, but I really wanted to take my time to make sure that I bring out the best product and the most accurate reflection of me as an individual. It's quite a a scary process to write a book and to put so much of yourself on the line, but I did really want to bring openness, transparency, and as much honesty as I could just so that I hope that the book can really influence and change the way others um, experience the human experience, which is um, ties us all together with its ups and downs. So that's enough from me. Um, welcome into 2020. Have the most extraordinary year ahead. And I'm really excited to be opening this conversation with such an, an empowering woman. So this isn't just about hydropower and an industry, but it's how one woman has really paved her own pathway and carved out um, a real career for herself in what could otherwise be seen as a very challenging and polarized environment. All right, welcome to the conversation. Here is Helen.
So my um, best friends are, um, we all met doing outdoor sports here yeah. in Tasmania. And now we're all, you know, 30 years later, um, moms of kids who have graduated or, and um, we still get together all about outdoor sports. And we're um, mostly into bikes now because we all have a bit of arthritis and stuff. Um, but we used to do distance running and um, trail running and all of that. And um, we have this thing about micro adventures that it is, um, we, in the same place you've lived for 30 years, you can still discover so many things. Okay. Like, for example, my friend who lives in Belle Reve, um, the other day we just got on our mountain bikes and looked at trucks behind her house and ended up doing this this massive loop around that. Um, that covered, you know, mountains. We were down a howrah along the shore. We're everywhere. Trails she had never been on but always wondered, you know, where does that one go? So we're like, okay, we're going down that one. And um yeah, I really, really get a kick out of that. So. I love that because I always talk about mini missions. Oh, yeah. And playing local. And, I mean, it is the way that we do have to eventually go is that eventually we probably can't expect to be able to travel so broadly and as far afield as we've been able to do recently. And I, every time I go out the door, I'm always just very conscious that it's a new day. Like, it's a different day. There's yeah. different light. There's different yeah. um, levels of moisture. There's yeah. different time of the day. And, you know, seasons and people that you run with. And, yeah, it's so yeah. awesome. And at this time of year, I get really excited because every Christmas Eve we go on a mission. Oh. So we have this thing called Christmas Eve Mission. And it started at a time when... You know, life was a little challenging and families were a bit polarised and I was at home on my own on this Christmas Eve and my mother was at work at the hospital where she was a doctor um, and I just got cabin fever and so I just found myself running out the door, grabbing my shoes and just running and it was about 7 o'clock in the evening and, I, you know, as I ran, the light started changing and I started noticing people's Christmas trees in their windows and I'd, you know, wave at people over the fences and then I found myself on the trails and the birds would be doing their thing and then it got dark and I managed to get back home, grab my hem torch and I thought, well, I'll just keep going. And so I ended up down at my mum's workplace at about 11 o'clock at night and, um, and then we ended up going to midnight mass spontaneously afterwards, came home completely pooped and you woke up on Christmas Day and you were just like, ugh. <laughs> an amazing experience and so ever since then we've always had this thing about like mini missioning from home and you know shut the laptop close the door on the retail store wander out into the street and think what are we going to do now uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah uh-huh. run through to christmas yeah or, or ride or we've done all sorts of things yeah jumped in water holes i don't know anything something. yeah <laughs> yeah good for you but i mean i must say that was one reason why I did connect with you at that dinner. We were at a couple of, what would you call it? I don't know, drinks, Christmas drinks. And, um, you know, you, you had it like a presence, which to me lit up the room a little bit. You clearly looked very fit. And sometimes that's not, it's not as prevalent in that world that we were in. And I just sort of felt drawn to towards you and to know sort of who you were and what you did. Goodness. And, yeah, and then you started talking about your work and, and you were also asking about my role on the on the council as a direct, as one of the councillors, and I was sort of talking about some of the challenges. And you had so many wise words, and it just like 
was just like, I have to have Helen on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So I've really enjoyed exploring your um, your CV. And one of the one of the things I just wanted to say right up front is congratulations on the award that you've won this year. Now, oh, I've got to, I want to get this right, but it was Women with Hydrovision Award. It's an internationally recognised award. And I was just sort of wondering um, if you could maybe, A, tell us a little bit more about it, but also... I'm kind of curious as to where that award sits for you in significance in your journey because my own experience has been it's lovely to be recognised and to, to have the hard work and the effort recognised but often it's these hidden things behind the scenes that are actually things we're most proud of. So I just kind of wanted to open on that note and maybe hear a bit more about it. And Yeah. Um, well, that was... Um an interesting award um, is actually primarily for some work I did 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes the value of the work you do doesn't emerge or the appreciation doesn't happen for some Mm -hmm. time. And um, that's kind of fascinating because um, you hope what you're doing is of value, but you don't always know the effect it has and sometimes that takes some time yeah. to show conscious awareness of that though on the journey or uh well I had an opportunity to do a job role that was one of the most exciting jobs I've ever done in my life um I was working at Hydro Tasmania for many years mm-hmm. and um Hydro Tasmania was a very active member of the International Hydropower Association mm-hmm. And um, uh, the hydro sector as a whole um, was undergoing, um, they're feeling very on the defensive because there had been this World Commission on Dams in the late 90s that highlighted a lot of the negative aspects of the industry and unfortunate practice Mm. around resettlement, um, you know, blocking rivers and um, biodiversity impacts and just, um, you know, inequitable outcomes. You know, the benefits of the developments were often going to urban areas for their power needs and the often rural locals were paying the costs. Mm. You know, they they often had natural resource-based livelihoods like a high dependency on fishing or, mm. or farming, um, floodplain areas and then if you know a dam is built and a reservoir floods those areas and they're moved and their land is lost and the compensation often was not really properly set out they were kind of a consequence of that development so um, the World Commission on Dams highlighted a lot of unfortunate case studies and uh, the IHA the International Hydropower Association Um, was trying to respond and really wanted to highlight that there was a lot of good practice as well and it could be done well. Uh, Anyway, this this led to a forum called the Hydropower Sustainability Assessment Forum that was setting out to um, uh, review and uh, upgrade and get consensus on a hydropower sustainability assessment Mm -hmm. framework. They called it a protocol. And I um, got the opportunity uh, on secondment from Hydro Tasmania to coordinate this forum. And my family, we went to, um, well, the IHA was based out of London, but this 
forum, it was a multi-year process and it met all over the world. And so it didn't actually matter where we lived. I was going to be traveling a lot. And we chose to live in France where my brother lives um, because I wanted my family yeah, to be with family. And um, my brother's married to a French woman and we actually lived in their house. And the kids went to an international school that my sister-in-law teaches at. So we had this great family experience of living in France and the kids going to an international school. Uh, And then I could go from there around. uh, And really this could only happen with a husband who's able to support that, which has also been one of the remarkable things in my opportunities. Mm. Uh, My husband's older than me and later in his career and so he was quite happy to be at home and be the house husband and just in um do the things that needed to be done while I could go out and do um you know things in my career that were opportunities yeah but clearly you two have been able to work through that very early on and and you don't you often don't gain support if you haven't given support. So you've obviously found your own way to support him on his journeys as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I hope so. <laughs> anyway, this um, this forum was very challenging because it involved sectors that were very polarized in their views about hydropower, just like we see with the mm. forest debate and many environmental issues. So we had the industry... We had um, governments, developed and developing country governments Mm, because hydropower has been, for countries that have the right resources, it's been a big player in their economic development, like the Pacific Northwest of the US or many European countries or Tasmania, uh, New Zealand. Um, For developing countries with, um, you know, the right, conditions and the water resources many want to develop hydropower and the western countries are yes but you need to meet all these standards and they're saying well you didn't meet those standards and we want the energy and we want it now and um so we we brought in developing and developed country governments um also the banks the world bank yeah i noticed that world bank asian development bank um well they were a a client for consulting later but on this forum we had called the equator principles financial institution so it's commercial banks like westpac anz commonwealth bank and um who who have but global banks who have signed the equator principles it's the the principles with which they're going to lend uh then we had ngos um the nature conservancy worldwide fund for nature Mm -hmm. and social ngos oxfam international um transparency international and so all these groups just didn't even know how to talk to each other. And so we had to go on this journey to understand, well, what are the most material issues, like what matters most with in terms of hydropower sustainability from a global perspective? Mm. And then what's, what's basic good practice and what's proven best practice? And this, um, so, so yeah, this whole process 
was this incredible process of joint learning and learning to respect each other's views, try to understand where the concerns are coming from, look together at examples and learning. And then it's really about agreeing on an assessment framework. So if you go and look at a hydropower project, you know, in Zambia, in Peru, in Bhutan, you use the same framework on these are the basic Mm-hmm. practices that we would like to see and then you recognize you know elements of best practice yeah uh, so that that's um that was what i did and that's what i got the award for 10 years later from the beginning of the project yeah because um uh we reached consensus and that was not expected Um, and it was a real achievement and it was a game changer for the sector as a whole it created a common language that was really important so if we talked about problems with um, livelihoods affected by hydropower that that was understood as a concept you know this is industry they don't understand livelihoods it's like a social science thing so there are a lot of concepts benefit sharing um just um issues with indigenous peoples and yeah lots of learnings about for for everybody getting these concepts on a common understanding globally Mm -hmm. and um explaining them in a way that everybody could talk about them I was curious to know what you thought the magic ingredient was then that allowed you to reach a consensus because, you know, like you say, with so many diverse needs and views around the table, like reaching consensus, as you said, you didn't think that you could get there. Yeah. Um, The Oxfam International Rep, um, each of these representatives on the forum was representing a sector. And um, so like for the the social NGOs, they they had some organizations behind them who were very anti-hydro and quite upset about negative effects that it's had. Um, and he suggested right at the start that we should agree on some principles mm-hmm. for consensus building. So I did some research. Um, in London, there was an NGO, it's called like Partnerships International or something like that. And I read some of their resources and I went to visit them. And they, that was helpful in understanding what was a success, what makes a successful Mm. partnership. And um, this wasn't a partnership, it was a, a forum, but many of the principles applied. So we developed and agreed on principles for consensus building and occasionally, we trotted these out and reminded ourselves, yeah. um, you know, that and, and even some meetings as we got near the end and we had kind of agreed on the easier things and the more contentious ones were left. We almost had this as like a placemat in front of everybody's seat. And so really they were about um, establish, um, understand, we'll, we'll avoid positions. Um, you know, positional, don't come, each party has to agree not to bring a position. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. about objectives yeah. and what are we trying and what are some of the obstacles and impediments and, you know, root causes of issues so that those could be focused on 
And, and imagine you have you were saying you had the best practice. I think you had Norway and Germany mm, were some of your best practices yeah. in Iceland, and then you had your developing nations yeah. as well. And I guess it would have been really important to feel like there was a quality in the table, like everyone had something to contribute. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Really so how how long was the how long was it from beginning the project to reaching consensus? About three point? years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And um, so the first year was really about scoping and understanding the key issues. And um, so what we did, we had meetings every two to three months uh, in the first year in different places focused on different themes. And then we got... Um, industry reps to share best practice and then independent um, experts and we looked at case studies and um, so and, and oh, it was a highly engaging process mm. so I'm very good at documenting stuff and um, I, I, I write really easily and comfortably and so um, we had really good documentation shared um we had a growing stakeholder list of you know people who followed what we were doing um shared all the minutes very openly had several global consultation phases at key points so one was on just the the scoping of what were the material issues and then later on a draft of this protocol and we learned from the World Commission on Dams, which was a process in itself. So I had mentors who had... I was going to ask that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found them and they helped and they appreciated being reached out to because there were learnings from those who had coordinated and led this World Commission on Dams. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the weaknesses of that process, we, well, unfortunate things, they had this incredibly... Um, thorough research process about global experience of dams but they got rushed at the end and they produced a final report without a draft going to comment and they never trialed their recommendations and so the report wasn't well accepted by all parties they felt it just landed too fast and they didn't have a say in what the end was so this process, we were very careful to have engagement on a draft, trialing of a draft, and you know how how you how you close yeah. out. Um, still, still, you know, you never you could keep going and try to make it perfect. Yeah, you can, but I mean, you're you're you are the experts, and to some degree, you want to teach, but you don't want to dictate the end result do you you want to come out with this consensus this like thing that everyone is excited and engaged in and and want to try and want to trial it yeah yeah Yeah. and the other thing about the world commission on dams was the outcome was very well supported by the ngos but industry did not support it at all and that was because they thought some of the recommendations were impractical yeah Uh, so this one we had to get industry behind it and owning it for it to actually be implemented and that was a really important process for us but then so then that's that leads me to maybe we could talk about it but from what I can understand from my own homework before the podcast is that 
the energy needs of the planet are expected to double between 2015 and 2060. I mean, that's like a, it's a huge figure if you think how much electricity we're already using. So, but there is an elephant in the room, like you've been talking about, that dams and hydropower don't, whilst we see it as a renewable energy source, we don't necessarily see it in a good light when it comes to particularly the environmental and social impacts of it not to mention that from my understanding they also take quite a while to build so some of these developing nations going you know we want it now and there's actually a challenge in that statement in just from a capacity perspective yeah 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 so a lot of attention i mean the with any environmental problems um there's a hierarchy of mitigation approaches you always look first at avoidance Mm -hmm. what can you do to avoid creating that problem to begin with Mm -hmm. Uh, minimization so how can you minimize the environmental impact or the negative aspects management or mitigation like how might you manage those over time or compensation Um, what if you have to make this impact can you transfer your um, positive enhancement effort somewhere else to get a greater gain, like an mm. offset? Um, That's one of the most conscient, con- contentious issues, though, because you know, I sit on the National Parks and Wildlife Advisory Board, and yeah. they utilize that sometimes as well, you know, when a development wants to be yeah. put in. And it's like, well, if you're going to do that, then you also have to do good yes. somewhere else. And yes. it's sort of people are like, well, what's like you know, for like? And yeah, what's exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you do have to do that very judiciously. Um, but that concept is not well understood in many mm. developing countries at all. And so um, there's some very innovative practice happening now and some real examples in the hydro sector of, um, for example, in Costa Rica, um, this was a World Bank funded project called Rivantazan. They offset a whole river. So they protected another river with similar values from ever being developed. Like, um, and that's, pretty rare because what we're finding in many countries and you know they the the engineers have made plans to develop every single Mm. resource available for that sector and there's no boundary or or balance Mm -hmm. so this is trying to say okay if we develop this river can we not develop that one that's where a lot of attention is happening at like basin scale hydropower planning um whether that is actually done is another question. That's what I wondered is what hierarchy are these decisions being made? Is it at the political level, you know, the CEO business level, the industry level? Um, You know, where is that decision-making process? Because you can, you could imagine, well, I could imagine that as you get a change in the political environment, whether these decisions stand or you get, you know, huge droughts, like what's happening in New South Wales at the moment and, there's a huge need for more water and they you know just see that river as a last resource yeah i mean um oh there there's so many complex environmental (laughs) problems it does your head in doesn't Mm -hmm. it and as our population grows and our activities intensify um new ones emerge and so over time i mean this this is an evolving space and Mm -hmm. It's been interesting in my career to have um, 
participated in the different aspects of it as it's evolved. So my my first job was an environment officer with the TES, wasn't even the EPA then, it was the Division of Environmental Management in the government. And the legislation we had, much like most countries, our first Environment Protection Act was um, just licensing industries in discharges, pipe end of pipe discharges, smokestack discharges Mm -hmm. for pollutants, and then also rehabilitation of land disturbances. So not really thinking about protecting from things happening, but more like mitigating the effects of it once it's happened. Absolutely. Uh, And so, you know, we're pretty good at that now and that basic compliance role. I think the social side has been very slow to evolve. And that was evident in this forum process 10 years ago. The industry had a pretty good handle on managing environmental impacts and they understood the issues. It doesn't mean it was easy to address or that they were going to develop without impact, but they had the expertise and people understood that process the social side, industry didn't understand the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, environmental scientists and experts are not social scientists. Social scientists um, were not really used to engaging with industry and businesses. So the way they were delivering advice was not really meshing well with how businesses process mm-hmm. <laughs> inputs. Um, so that was a big contribution to the hydro sector from the forum was really lifting understanding of the social side. These days, um, a lot of the challenges are cumulative impact mm-hmm. challenges, and we don't have the institutions or systems or processes to deal with cumulative impacts very well. Uh, so it's each each sector, you know, in a space maybe doing all it's required to do mm. and meeting compliance obligations, but there's there's just too much happening. So water allocation issues, um, many water allocations are based on, you know, kind of an average condition and it's the extreme conditions that then create all these stresses. Mm. And we, we, we need to plan for, um, those extreme conditions as well as the average conditions when we think about water allocations yeah. or um you can definitely adapt. see how it creeps up though can't yeah. you i mean you see i see it in the tourism industry yeah. and that's one reason what's really led me to be interested in being involved in say the parks role but I, you know take your example where you've got um, taking water out for irrigation if you just look at one farmer doing that you think what well, you know that, that seems realistic. You get a second farmer, a third farmer, a fourth farmer, and the entire river system, and then the changing environment and the drying environment, and suddenly yeah. that one decision is sort of doesn't make quite so much sense anymore. So it's a death by a thousand cuts. Absolutely. And um, our institutions aren't that adaptable because mm. they're underpinned by legislation, and legislation is, um, you know, it was designed to address the problems at the time. So as we have new emerging issues, we don't have the legislation or the frameworks to deal with that. Mm. 
and the people in the agencies are required to deliver the legislation. So they're very focused on going through the bureaucratic processes um, defined by the acts that create those institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need new types of institutions and new types of processes. Uh, and it takes a lot of political will to, to, to make those shifts um, because there'll be winners and losers. And change is always uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of, um, you know, um, enterprises, small, small and large, have invested and set up their businesses on assumptions mm. about what resources they could access and what was allowed. So to say, no, you're not allowed to do that anymore because we've discovered this is a problem, you need to compensate them mm. or have some grandfather clauses and that takes a lot of money. Mm. Uh, and that that's, I think it's easier to avoid these <laughs> things than to confront them because there's a lot of money and, and resources required to help make those transitions. So am I right in saying, Helen, that what also drove you towards where you are now in your career, so you were, you were in executive roles and then you've moved into more of a director landscape, and I think I remember you saying at the, uh, at the drinks evening that we were at that you were really interested to be in that position because it was around the board table that a lot of these decisions are actually being made. Yeah, I, um, so I've worked for a number of different sectors, uh, government, uh, NGOs, uh, academia, and I find that one of the most powerful sectors for change, for good, is industry. Mm. Um, and that there's often very high capacity and capability within industry. Um, in my early roles, I felt that the environmental and sustainability aspects and even community engagement, which I think is very bundled in together, were kind of add-ons to the core business. It's like, you know, like HR, but, you know, you sort of need these functions, but it's not core business. It's just something you deal with. Um, but really it is core business and increasingly I think this is recognized. Um, society is recognizing it. So take tourism, you know, you are completely reliant on a certain environmental quality mm -hmm. for your business to be viable. And, um, you know, for our labor force, we, for our workers, we need a certain social uh, capacity and um, welfare um, situation. So it's all, all very tied in together. Mm. B businesses, they, people, people work to the skills they have and what they know. <laughs> and so business people don't get the environment or social science, really. Not um, necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah. And I found in, in Hydro Tasmania that a lot of what I felt I did was act as translator between the scientists who were bringing oh, information on environmental condition and trying to convert that into forms that made sense to the business, fit into business processes, like making business cases mm -hmm. for an environmental or social mitigation measure. You have to frame the problem and you need other people to own that problem before they're going to do anything or pay any attention. 
Um, and you have to frame it in terms that make sense to them about risk, um, compliance, uh, reputation, brand. Um, or a benefit gain that can come back in their favour by, I can imagine, like a protection issue, like that if we protect it now, there's going to be a gain in the future. We yeah. just you know, yeah. kind of wait to realise it. Yeah, and how do you convert all that into a business yeah. case then? That's You can pitch to a, a border executive. So, yeah. so that got me very interested. made me feel that I needed to better understand the way business people are thinking and how they make decisions. And that's forever changing though, isn't it, Helen? Like we are in a, in a time where social license is really beginning to change the way businesses operate and you know we i was even given an example around the the board table the other day at our recent meeting in um, aicd where there was a question put on the table is like you know has social license has the demands of community impacted the way you run business and i said absolutely you know when we moved into opening a retail store four years ago we didn't want to polarise anyone. We didn't want to have a political stance. We didn't want to have an environmental stance. We didn't necessarily, you know, we tried to play neutral. And as, you know, um, we're starting to see this real rise of, you know, climate change is real and it's happening whether we like it or not, you start to kind of think that um, where do you sit on the issue? And I knew very clearly where I sat, but, yeah, early brain, early Hanny's brain had been like, don't, don't polarise people, you know, because your business needs to be viable. But we're seeing, you know, more and more people demanding more of an understanding on how their products are made, more demand on businesses to stand up and make a stance because, like you say, businesses have a, have the capability to create positive change. And so when the recent rallies around the climate change came about, it was like, you know what, no, we need to be involved. We actually need to make a stance and really stand up for what we believe in. Mm-hmm. And um, so that environment, I just, I guess I use that as an example that that's the challenge of being a director around the board table is realising that you can't ever get complacent. That environment is changing all the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I also am extremely cautious to um, not be associated with a particular sector political Mm -hmm. view I definitely feel very apolitical but because I have a science background I totally get what the scientists are saying Mm. and um, you know I I just find it quite interesting how people cannot listen to the science um, when it's very very clear but politically not convenient uh but i so so i mean what i get very excited about is is win-win solutions Mm. so i i i i feel very strongly that people running businesses they've really taken risks they've really put themselves out there they're very enterprising and society needs them and so it shouldn't be environment versus business there are models for win-win and um, their their tactics and approaches where society and business can coexist and that that's the space that I'm really excited about there's um, a a field um, emerging called shared value 
which I am really interested to learn more about. And it's kind of an evolution from this, you know, first, first we're protecting the environment and being environmentally responsible. Then there's corporate social responsibility and sustainability. Kind of this next wave is um, there's a lot of attention on circular economy um, where waste to resource, um, you know, cradle to grave thinking mm. of supply chains. And um, shared value is about looking at social problems and environmental quality may be a social problem and how businesses can um, frame business solutions around that, that solve those social problems. So, I mean, like um, renewable energy <laughs> businesses, um, businesses that are focused on cleaning up air quality, um, environmental treatment, those, those would all fit, but there, there must be a really wide range of, of ways. Um, enterprises that are employing um, people with disabilities mm. or, um, yeah, I, I... Absolutely, and that was actually the space that my brother and I spoke about is that's his sector is going in and looking at businesses and how they can bring bring concepts around renewable technologies into the business but in a win-win situation yeah. you know in fact win-win-win you know yeah. win for the people win for the environment win for the business exactly um and i don't think you should ever be you know as someone who runs a business i don't really think you should be driven to make these changes because um, it'll make you look good or you'll make more dollars. Yeah. But if you can create the win-win or win-win-win situation, I can absolutely see it. But I guess what I'm really interested in, because especially some of the roles that you're sitting on now, you know, the, the huge, we're talking huge enterprise. Um, how do you actually do that at the board table? <laughs> how do you bring your voice in to help create a win-win-win-win-win situation? Uh -huh. Well, um, I guess you really want to choose board roles where you feel that that enterprise is receptive. Um, I mean, I don't have a huge board <laughs> experience. Um, the one I I've done some government statutory mm -hmm. boards that are absolutely in line like with the environmental the protection, environment protection and the previous resource planning and development commission. Mm -hmm. Now, now it's called the planning commission. Mm -hmm. um, but so Tazewater is the first commercial board and the whole purpose of Tazewater, it's like the, the perfect sustainable development a conundrum and challenge. Uh, mm. So I find it very magnetic. Um, and because this so social outcomes and environmental outcomes are absolutely core to its function, that's an easy conversation to mm. have. And it's, um, you know, you have to discharge wastewater um, without causing environmental harm. You have to deliver clean drinking water for people's quality of life and it's a human right mm -hmm. um, and you have to be affordable and we have big challenges with those more vulnerable and in, in our society uh, and then you have the technical challenges of the in aging infrastructure mm -hmm. um, non-compliant infrastructure and the affordability challenges you know well you don't have 
all the money that you would like to just fix it now. So then how do you prioritize and get the right balance? Well, everyone on the board owns those problems in their whole holistic form. So that one's not hard. I think it would be harder for a a profit-oriented business with shareholders, many of whom are only looking at what their shareholding returns are and really don't want to know what's behind those things. So, you know, you'd need a, a company that is interested in what you bring. And I mean, obviously, we're talking like change has to happen on a global scale in order to put ourselves in a position as a society where we're proud of it in the next 10, 20, 50 years time. Yeah. Um, And obviously also in a sustainable sense. But do you think that then if you feel there needs to be a values alignment, there needs to be that magnetism that you talk about to step into a role do you think then it is up to those organizations to lead the change or how do we create change in the stalemate situations? Uh-huh. I, I think organizations have to step up and um, there are a lot of really positive signs. So let's hope that momentum builds the right yeah. way. Yeah, I, the, um, I followed the World Business Council for Sustainable Development Um, with great interest because these are many of the world's largest corporations Mm. and they they've put out a vision 2050 which is you know what we need to see in the world for us to be sustainable with a population of 9 billion or whatever it might be then and then what are the pathways to get there decade by decade and um, they framed our you know the this decade is the turbulent teens, <laughs> whilst we have a lot of disruption and upheaval. And then in the 20s, we need to start re- resetting some mm-hmm. things that are clearly on the right trajectory. And we do see signs of that through just what you're saying, um, increasing um, people's attention on what they want to see in their products and mm-hmm. services. Um Yes, but I think also the compliance framework really interests me. I um, found in in business that if if there's a compliance requirement, businesses just do it. But if it goes beyond compliance, there's a lot of debate about mm-hmm. do we need to do this? Is this where we put our money? Businesses have to go beyond compliance because compliance is just holding us Um, at some basic level and um, how do you encourage businesses to do more that that's That's the question that completely fascinates me yeah yeah and the other thing that I think is is really challenging is how do individual businesses and institutions show more leadership with these cumulative impact issues so the different actors let's say and um Oh, um, the Darwin Estuary, um, you know, individually, they may not be such a problem. Collectively, there may be big problems. Who owns that problem? Mm. Um, We have the Darwin Estuary program as a fantastic example of getting uh, a framework for collaboration, Mm. but they don't have authority. And um, this is an interesting challenge and no, no participant. All the participants, you know, um, 
will will belong to a collaborative activity, but none of them are going to, to lead it. Lead it. it. And they're all waiting yeah. for someone else to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Will you participate? They aren't going to take Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And isn't that the biggest question here is like, you know, going back to your earlier statement, like businesses and corporations need to step up. But who who is it that is creating the step up because if we look at you know we're, we're motivated by the same things we want similar outcomes and if we sort of think that gee am I going to get it heard at that table is there a values alignment therefore maybe I should go to this organization that does have that but then who is going to help that organization step up if you know and that's where I wonder where the individual versus the collective comes into the question yeah it's like how do we create change yeah. I mean um these are real case-by-case mm. discussions True. and I think that most participants are not adv- averse to doing the right thing um as long as they're helped and mm. it's made easier to do the right thing. And you come back with that win-win thinking again. Like you help guide them and ask the questions. And that... understand what's challenging for yeah. them to make a change and what might help them make the change and how can you promote their business if mm. they have made the change. It takes lots of of tactics. It takes time and engagement. Mm. And it's all a bit theoretical, really. Mm. Um, so... I think society needs lots more of these examples, but mm. we have to shift some of the ways we approach things. So do you have, you talked about mentors when you were doing the, the forum and creating the assessment tool, but do you have mentors, are they the same mentors, are they different mentors now that are helping you to make the transition onto this leadership level? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, uh, no, certainly I don't have the same mentors. Um, I think that um, in the different things I've done, I've had different role models. Mm. And um, they're still all role models for me, but I'm not doing exactly what they've done. I've always like taken it some- somewhere else or the follow-up has been somewhat different. Mm. So I don't... Um, I don't think I have a obvious mentor or role model, but I definitely have professional networks that I feel um, I, I can go to and who make me feel buoyant. And mm-hmm. it's the type of um, the type of people who are just really interested in how you can take something to another level. Mm. Uh, and and those are the people I want to engage with because just through the conversations you have with them, you're always asking yourself, what's possible here? What more can I do? And and sometimes it's just in the nuance, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is where I get excited about the win-wins and being on a board. It's just the kind of conversations you have. It isn't like they have to completely restructure themselves and change their vision. It's actually just the little things you can pick up along the way where mm. you widen the value you create, or it's just that, that what else can we do to get some gain here? Yeah. So I do have people in my life who I know just by being around them or interacting with them, I'm lifted 
and I use them as sounding boards. I engage with them different ways. We go for walks, we go for coffee. We just, um, because I do consulting work, (laughs) we try to get on some of the same consulting Mm -hmm. jobs because we really lift each other and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's been probably one of the biggest learnings that I've had over the last 12 months was I I used to be sort of stoically independent in pursuit of excellence uh-huh. and, and pursuit of understanding and knowledge. It's what drives me. And um, and then realising that, you, you know, we, don't, we can work independently, but we don't work as silos. And so much of what we strive to achieve has actually been done before. Maybe not in exactly the same field, like you say, but in a parallel field or you know um the pat there's patterns everywhere and that it is really important to look for our models of excellence yeah. and um and then to engage with them as well as best we can but um i found it really also quite interesting so i've been studying under someone who's based in singapore this amazing performance coach um and she really gave me this understanding that there's four types of people on the planet um you have the how people, so they ask the specific questions. You know, how do you build the dam? You know, how much water is it going to carry? You know, all these sort of how very nitty gritties, and they're really important because they always bring you down to ground and go, well, yeah, true. You know, how are we going to do it? And then you have the what people who are like, well, we could do this, and we could do this, or we could do this, and we could try this, and so they sort of give you options. Um, then you have the why people who are very like values driven to some degree, you know, as in well, why, why do we need to build the dam? You know, why is this really important, you know, to the community? What outcomes do we want? But then you also have the what if thinkers and they're the sort of very blue sky thinkers as in like, well, what if we didn't build a dam and we build a wind farm? You know, they're the ones that kind of will go on a tangent. And I think that, you know, when I think about role models is like having people maybe that challenges in each of these quadrants because we can all do everything but there are some people that just naturally fall into one style of of thinking or questioning um you know i don't, I don't know does that resonate with oh you? i really like that yeah, yeah i really um uh for for me um i work with a lot of experts and i feel like i'm not an expert in anything and for uh because i i i, I appreciate you know, the technical disciplines, but I don't want to just do that. I'm more interested in how you bring it together and the so what. How, how do you take it to, like through the business case, to a decision that affects change? And, um, and I think I'm better at that. And so I, I, I'm like the integrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very aware of the need for different people bringing different things into a team. And I often have the team leader role in my okay. consulting jobs because I'm better at it. I'm not the expert. Uh, what makes you better at it? Just because you sit back and listen and absorb and process and then ask the questions? Or? Uh, part of that. Um, part of it is I, I, I always feel kind of stupid surrounded by a lot of experts. And so I always trying to ask, to understand, yeah, it probably is like the why or the how. And so I can get back to basics yeah. pretty easily. And, um, 
I think when you work with experts, they're often so far down in the level of sophistication yeah. that it kind of um, can be hard to link that to the core of what a client is asking for or what you need right there. So I can get back to basics and ex- if, if I can explain it in a way that I can understand, then I help other people understand it. So by feeling a bit dumb myself, and I think this is a really important mm. thing, especially for women I work with, it's okay to feel dumb. In fact, it can be a real asset because you're not asking stupid questions. If you don't get it, someone's not explaining it very well. And it's really important to be able to process and and share things in a way everybody understands and gets. So um, I like that process and I like writing and I like, um, I like presenting in like sort of that PowerPoint kind of way of how do you digest this down to three dot points in a picture? Yeah. You know, like what's really at the essence of this and what do those people really need to understand? Um, so that's what I do pretty well, I think. Oh, I love it. That's where I think our brains absolutely connect. And I love that you say that that's women need to hear this part of the conversation. But I think so many people full stop need to hear this part of the conversation because I think so often we kind of block ourselves from stepping forward in giant steps because we're there's a fear of failure or a fear of feeling um, out of your depth or ignorant I don't know I don't know there's like so many things that can block us and yet so often it is about just leaning in and stepping up and having a go and realizing like you say that there's an asset in that um, I said I've personally certainly have experienced that in in a couple of the roles that I'm in at the moment. At the beginning is like to give yourself permission, even just to sit there and listen and in, and take it all in and absorb it. Because eventually, the questions begin to form in your brain. You know, it might not be the first meeting, it might not be the second meeting, it might be a year in, but you suddenly realise you feel like you've got something to value add. And even if that is just clarity in some of the complexity. Yeah, so I hear that really strongly. Yeah, I hear that really strongly too. That resonates very well. And um, just thinking about what you do with your trail running and your exercise, like I really like being outdoors and I I do lots of processing, as I'm sure you do. Mm. And um, that's work, you know, that's you, you hear those inputs, you're processing, you're forming, you're questioning and thinking about it and you come back to a, to a meeting or to your next thing and you've kind of moved something a step in in your mind. I actually love hearing you say that, you know, that it is work because maybe it's a female thing, I don't know, maybe it's something for everyone, but I hear, especially my women who I work with, often talk about guilt. And I've spoken about this on the podcast quite a lot about guilt, about giving yourself that time out and outside to be just with yourself. Um, but like you say, that is where we do so much of our processing and uh, even unwinding and bringing ourselves back to our most creative level of thinking, which yeah. I think is often where the blue sky thinking can come from. Yeah, I worked yeah. part-time for, I think okay. it was 11 years. Oh, wow. um, and that was a, a huge thing for me with working at Hydro Tasmania because I had three kids and my 
they're three years apart so I sort of went through these cycles of um, (laughs) maternity leave and then coming back you know very part-time and sneaking up to maybe four days and then another child Mm -hmm. and um, and I was very fortunate to have a boss who was incredibly supportive and Mm -hmm. gave me um, projects I could work on projects really well part-time because I could delegate and Mm -hmm. then just check alignment and um you know that was good for everybody they were able to just do their thing and Mm. i just kept you know i could just keep checking in well it it wasn't part-time at all of course you know you're and i appreciated that that i could have the space to be with my kids Mm. and do other things and in return i'm going to be thinking about how do we do this best so i yeah, I'm a huge fan of part-time and if um, and yeah, what we call work, I think we, will over the next decades be completely reconceived mm. about what is work. It what, needs to be though. Yeah. You know, the 9 to 5:30 model these days just it doesn't it just doesn't work for everyone. I mean, I'd be interested to know for how many people it actually works for. Um um, yeah, I'm glad that we're having this part of the conversation. You know, this year I spontaneously took three weeks off and in my heart of hearts I just wanted to run the length of the Pyrenees Mountains. And I was talking last night to a group um, who were raising funds for the Royal Hobart Hospital Research Foundation and they're going off to do the Kokoda Challenge and so they're sort of fundraising to go and do this. And they went around and introduced everyone before I spoke and there was just this common theme about finding the time for yourself to do the training, you know, um, finding time for yourself without feeling guilty. And so I ended up talking about this journey that I had and it's become quite a metaphor for me and I see the pattern playing out in a lot of areas of life is that when I start something, I often see it as a physical task. You know, I must just get this task done and you know in the mountains it was very uncomfortable physically so you're thinking about gee let's physically get through this day and then they reached this point where that phase passed and it became very mental it was like oh you know (laughs) this is a bit harder than I thought you know how do I do it um what do I need to eat what do I need to drink became very technical very mental and then that phase began to pass and it became really emotional. So it was like, oh, you know, um, a lot of tears. You know, why am I doing this? You know, why would I put myself in this situation of fear? Um, then I'd almost get angry with myself. You know, you'd ride through all these emotions and you'd get to a mountaintop and you'd just be weeping and you'd be on cloud nine. And, and then kind of that passed and it just became this really quiet space, which I kind of called almost like a spiritual space where you think you'd feel more joy and elation. You'd think you'd have more going on in your brain. You'd think you'd feel more in your body after three weeks of running in the mountains. But I just didn't. You know, it was just a super quiet landscape. And I kind of came back from that and um, realised, yeah, that a lot of the time I'd been wrestling with guilt for being there. But you come home and you're just so empowered. Um, so you've learnt so many lessons. You're so energised and excited to gift this forward in in all of your your capacities and your landscapes that you work and play in and um I found like I came back just a totally different person 
And yet so often we don't know that at the outset of these journeys and this time we gift ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, there's a lot of trust, isn't there? Completely. The things you're doing will make sense later on and you look back on them and you could see what role that played in, in yeah. your life or in your personal development. Or um, I think because um, I'm in my late 50s and I look back at the things I've done in my my career and they seemed really random at the time and um but with reflection I think no there's actually some some purpose and some personal inquiry or personal development driving those different things and while some of them look tangential at the time they're actually from this stage of my life looking back I can see how they all kind of fit a certain development pathway and and for me um I was telling you I get excited about you know this idea of solving environmental problems what I I I had to build quite a big toolkit of skills and experiences Mm -hmm. and knowledge to have to build some confidence that I had a clue what I was talking about and what 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 that really means and how that's evolving over mm. time. So I've done lots of different things, um, but they all Makes kind sense. of fit a sense of purpose. <laughs> so so for you, you know, all there are many challenges we set ourselves and um, at different scales, mm. um, and all those steps, setting a goal and achieving it all builds um your capability your experience your belief so yeah i feel like if there was one word to sum up the conversation we've had so far to me it would actually be patience Mm. because that was where we started at the beginning and asked you about that word and maybe we never completely finished that part of the conversation but you were saying you know you were being recognized for something that you actually embarked on 10 years earlier yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. you're so right. And I remember when we met, um, patience came up in our conversation <laughs> too about board roles. And for me, absolutely it's a it's a huge thing because I'm often um not a classic fit, you know, on a board role. I don't have a long career of um sitting on boards, executive roles, heading businesses. So um, and then I come from this environmental science background. What if I'm a, you know, a rabid greenie who's going to just, you know, condemn everything and turn everything upside down? So it takes some time for me because I'm saying things that are different mm. than, you know, the norm in the mainstream and what some people are comfortable with. Um, saying and so what I've learned is I might raise ideas or suggestions people don't receive them right away because they're not ready to Um, and it can take some time the most powerful outcome is for them to raise them themselves Mm. later on that's like so exciting to me when something I've said and it just seems to get kind of ignored at the time. And a bit later on, someone else pipes up with this. I feel very successful yeah. because the most powerful outcome is ownership 
by other people. It takes trust and a planting of ideas and kind of um, building around those. So if we want to see a changed world, we have to really think, yes. how do we do that? You're right. That was exactly the take home I took out of our conversation because I, I think I was, you were asking me how some of my roles have gone and I said how that there definitely been this very uncomfortable period that I'd gone through where I felt like you were talking at a bit of a wall, you know, and you didn't know whether you were being heard. And you said to me that when you are feeling uncomfortable, you'd learnt that that's when you need to be there the most. And that was probably the most powerful thing that I could have heard. Um, because I think that's what you were trying to say to me is that eventually some of these things will, you know, they will have been heard, but you might not have known they'd been heard, but eventually you'll see them begin to play out. I think so. Yeah. Um, and also there's quite a learning process about how to express those ideas and fit them into the conversation. That's been a learning process for me. Mm-hmm. And how this is on a board how mm. how do you go from just raising a different way to thinking about it to an expression that everyone agrees leads to an action you know that that's a big jump yeah and, and the board though is only one landscape in which you use that skill i mean i you know think about the dynamics of a family for example like you can even bring that understanding of communication skills into any role mm. um, to be heard to listen mm-hmm. to create change for mm-hmm. the better mm-hmm. so yeah so then my final questions really I mean I've got a few but for anyone say younger or wanting to embark even further along their journey did you go out of your way to knock on doors did you just continue to work on self and I see learning as a huge flavor through everything you've done and your resume is just unbelievable and it's just filled with learning opportunities um and I'm yeah curious to know did you did yeah did you just sort of work on self or did you sort of think I want to be there and I'm going to go and proactively knock um I think it's probably more the self thing Mm. um like what i i feel like um my my advice to anyone would be go with what you are most excited and passionate about and the career aspects of that will fall into place because if you're really expressing your your passion something something shines and there's a place for that that will become apparent um so just trust that that will happen uh so for me i oh seize every opportunity seize the opportunity and just see see what you what can happen so so for example um i my first job here was in the then EPA. It was the Division of Environmental Management. I was a level one environment officer (laughs) doing like assessments for license applications and learning a bit how government works. And Mm. um, I did that for a couple of years and I 
really wasn't working on the big environmental problems. The level three environment officers were doing that. And I'm thinking, God, you know, I could be here 20 years and gradually get up to level three. Or I could step out, get another qualification, step back in and work on the meteor environmental Mm. problems. So I set out to get another qualification and I actually didn't mind what it was. (laughs) I I admired... um, a colleague of mine who had a PhD and could talk about environmental problems at this technical level um, that I I couldn't. And so I wanted to be able to look at environmental problems and have the technical skills to pick them apart and analyze and think how mm-hmm. to approach. I was like, oh, okay, I need a PhD. <laughs> and I, um, I was like saying, oh, maybe in chemistry, maybe in this, maybe in that. Well, there was a study that came up, the Mount Lyell Remediation Research and Development Project, Commonwealth funded, West Coast. Um, I volunteered to take minutes of the meeting at the meetings that were discussing this program. And I just, and they said, sure, you can take minutes. And I just used that opportunity to understand the project and to ask the different people would any aspect of this lend itself to a PhD. And just by putting myself into that environment and willing to do anything but just getting to know it and asking about opportunities, an opportunity just unfolded that I could never have gotten. Um, So for me that I have a few examples like that where mm-hmm. you just just get into it and yeah. and and you'll see things differently from there and those opportunities will unfold because you've taken that step mm-hmm. where you can see something different and this happens in my consulting life too a lot of the consulting jobs I do I mean we have no idea how we're going to do them quite frankly and um cuz they're complex uh they're in foreign countries, you have multidisciplinary teams, they're kind of pushing boundaries of methodologies. But you trust. You just take the step, you're going to see the next steps better from there. And you do. Each it's time. so true. Yeah. It's so true. And actually, I was working with a client yesterday who was having quite substantial challenges in her working career. But we just... Um, taking her on the journey of running the length of the overland track in Tasmania, so 65k. And I remember right at the beginning of that journey, taking her, um, it was 16 weeks that we trained for this uh, challenge. I remember right at the very beginning, she said, I don't know if I can do this. I don't, I don't even know. And I just remember saying, well, the only way we're going to know is just to get started. And bringing the same metaphor back to that point you know yesterday in the conversation is like she's like I don't know I don't know what I want to do and I don't know if I there is going to be a job out there that I'm going to love and I was like well we're not going to know unless we you know get started and you you start to see those parallels and those stories like in your life and I I love that you bring that up I call it leaning in just leaning in you know you don't have to fall flat on your face but you can lean in a little and just take one or two steps and get that momentum going. Yeah, you need good safety nets mm. to do that. You you have to trust if you do fall flat, that's okay. Someone's got your back yeah, and that's okay. really important. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, I love thinking that. So then maybe my final bit, Helen, just because this is obviously a huge bit close to my heart, is I'm very interested in how individuals can position themselves as an individual to be ready to take these challenging opportunities. And, and you know, when I look at yours, you've got a plethora of, you know, challenges. You're you know, mum, you're a partner, you've got your working career, you're in very challenging situations professionally. So... What do you do in terms of, I don't like calling it self-care, but um, making sure that the best version of self enters the room when you need to? Um, well, I think um, it's really important to always tend um, myself so I'm strong. Uh, strength is a really big thing for me. Um and I need to do the things that I feel maintain my strength as a person. So that's um, exercise, it's getting outdoors, it's, which I find a very strengthening thing. It's um, pacing myself, um, just, you know, it's just a balanced life, really. Um, but I, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. I can and I'm a planner so um I I can plan those things and I do what I commit to Mm -hmm. um so if I okay I need to do this I I generally do it and I do it with quite full focus Mm -hmm. um so yeah I think that's how I sustain myself Mm. well it's quite a skill you know, especially when you work for yourself, to be able to almost shut the door and enter the next door, you know, shut the door into the next door. And yes. But I think it is really important. You know, we certainly found that in our role um, as a husband and wife running a business that can be <laughs> unruly at times is yeah. to make sure that when you walk in the door at home, you know, you're in the door and you're in the door as husband and wife, not as business partners. Yeah. And vice versa, when we go to work, you walk in the door and you leave husband and wife at home so that you can have those challenging discussions that at times need to happen or support one another, but as business partners. And, um, you know, we entered my studio here to do the podcast and this is my creative space. Yeah. So I don't allow work in my creative space. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. Love yeah. that you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 2020, it's just around the corner. Can we believe it? <laughs> Have you got any any playful adventures planned? Any professional, anything exciting that's making your toes tingle? <laughs> um, well, um, I had this idea that I want to... Um, well, I feel I have a lot of working years left in me. And when I left Hydro Tasmania in 2015, I... Um, I really wanted through the consulting to get closer to the coal face of a lot of these practical problems that I had been working with the concepts in the words of like resettlement, like ethnic minorities and displacement and, um, you know, um, oh, I mean, the environmental side, I've been close to the coal face. So for me, a lot of the learning was um, development issues mm-hmm. and um, in developing countries. And uh, so I, I've, 
I actually feel I've really done that very well, <laughs> quite exhaustively. Wow. And so my my thinking then is how you bring that back home. Mm. Like how, how do you take all these learnings and apply them back at home? You know, I'm working in developing countries and uh, I feel like the skills I have, I should be trying to see how they help our own development. So I'm quite interested to gradually um, add more board roles. And yeah, I was going to say, because you could see that skill and that need in so many industries. I mean, I can think just straight away tourism, you know, got this huge issue with developments and managing the influx of tourists into Tasmania that go to these places where for example, our locals always love to visit and always expected they can just visit and for free. And yet, um, so in, in a funny way, there is a displacement of locals from these places that they have a spiritual or personal yeah. connection to. Yeah. And so that, um, it comes back to that discussion of being able to navigate the complexities of having people around the table to create uh-huh. a win-win. Yeah. I could see that being so useful in so many uh-huh. sectors and uh-huh. settings. Yeah, so that that's my interest. So um, um, just I have one consulting job I've been doing for four years in Laos that has one more year. Um, that's with a resettlement program mm-hmm. and going through that the villagers receive their entitlements, 4,000 resettlers. And um, that will finish. There's a possible other consulting job that um, could could be a very influential um, contribution if, mm. if that happens. So I'm going to see if that happens or not. It's like an, at an expression of interest stage. Mm. And yeah, just looking at um, board opportunities. Mm. And other than that, um, no, don't have big, big plans. Hopefully just some playful ones in there as well. <laughs> no, I try to do that, you know, yeah. throughout everything. And, um, you know, just going for bike rides or doing stuff on the property or things with the family. Yeah. Just do that interspersed. Uh, well, I mean, I've... I've taken so much away from today's conversation. I really thank you. You know, I said to you when you walked in the door here that I was kind of nervously excited about this conversation because, to be honest, in your words, I felt dumb, you know, reading through and trying to get my head around the sort of worlds that you've worked in is um, is quite foreign to me and yet really interesting, um, particularly that, that juggle that you've been navigating with, you know, helping businesses to move forwards but not to the detriment of environmental social and other challenges or or important areas so i really thank you for that but what i've really taken away i think from today's conversation is just some of those um tips about how you've navigated through your professional and private life and you know particularly around patience and uh, the importance of communication i've just had so many little gold nuggets Thank you. Oh, I've yeah. loved talking to you, honey. Yeah. I find you really inspiring and one of the people I described where I <laughs> think you uplift the people you come in touch Thank with you. and that's a real gift. I appreciate that. You know, I was definitely reflecting when you were talking about needing to, you know, work on yourself and just putting yourself in a, in a position and then 
but really pursuing what you love and probably not quite completely clear on what I love yet. I know that like you, I love to be in a position where I can listen and ask questions and reflect and synthesize things and hopefully explain it in a way that people can understand. But where that skill yet fits, I'm not completely sure. But I, I think that's part of the fun of it, you know, is that you don't know what's around the corner and, and being okay with being uncomfortable in that is, yeah. is quite cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Hanny. Okay.